Hello, welcome back to Books, Beers and Burgers. My name is Ben Hobson and I'm very delighted to be here to talk to you all today about a very great book with an author I've admired for a very long time. His first book, Locust Summer, has just been released this year um, during some pretty dire circumstances. I'm sure you can all, all can imagine. So it was awesome to chat to him today. His name is David Allen Patali, whose name I practiced saying just to, you know, make sure I get it completely right. I didn't want to make a mess of it. You know, he's my guest. I want to honor him. I want to know his name. And you can hear me the first time I say it to him uh, completely botching it. But, you know, that's how things go. When you put a lot of effort in and you practice, it's just, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, it was awesome to chat to David about uh, one of his favorite books. And I was just really impressed. And I should have known because every time I do one of these conversations, the depth of knowledge of the person I'm interviewing is just, it just becomes so apparent so quickly. Um, David just knows so much about the particular genre that we talk about and he knows so much about writing and the world of journalism as well. So it was, it's a great chat. I'm so happy to be able to um, be talking to David today. So I hope you guys enjoy it. And as always, I would love for you guys to send us your feedback. I love hearing from you guys about whether or not you get much out of these discussions that I've been having and about whether or not you've been reading the books as well, whether you like the books we discuss. I'm very interested in your thoughts. Uh, so hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Ben Lee Hobson. Or you can follow me on Instagram at, uh, at ben.l.hobson as well. And uh, you'll find my profile there. But I'd love to hear back from you guys. Anyway, on with the show. Um, yes, <laughs> welcome. I'm very glad to be speaking to you. I see that you've got a beer ready to go. What sort of beer have you got for our discussion today, David? Do I have a Gage Roads Single Fin. Which right. Summer w- Ale. Beer? Good Summer Ale. Gage Roads is the, uh, it's like the, the approach lane off Fremantle Harbour. So all the ships coming through Gage Roads. All so right. It's very West Aussie beer. Apparently, this is the kind of beer that they would have been serving at the AFL Grand Final. Uh, this weekend had the sponsors of from Carlton United Brews had not come in and said, nah, get your WA beers out. We oh. need to have our Victorian beers. So we've been well, invaded. Look, let's say, <laughs> do we have the same level of attendance to this podcast as the AFL Grand Final? Not quite, but... <laughs> not quite. <laughs> Depends what <laughs> I say. <laughs> Still represent. All right, Gage Road. Yeah. Now, we had a bit of a, a, a mess up with the timing. I, I take full responsibility for this being the, the what's the word I'm looking for? Prime example of what a good podcast uh, organizer should be. <laughs> um, but I thought that because you're in Western Australia, it moved forward two hours, but it's actually in yeah. reverse. So oh, I was already- asking me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it broke my brain. I don't I even know my double- times table. Yeah. No, I should have double checked. I mean, it's not hard. <laughs> I just had to go to Google and go, what time is it in Western Australia right now? But anyway, I had my beer, but this week I've actually started drinking whiskey for the first time in my life properly. Ah, I'm a big, I'm a big whiskey man. What do you got? Are you really? Well, I don't know anything. I'm just complete novice. Yeah. But I got, so I've been working this whole year on, on losing a lot of um, body fat and I got down to my goal this week. So I've, celebrated with a whiskey so i've got a lagavulin well done yes it's quite a nice one and i thought because lagavulin, that's the uh the ron swanson's choice that's excellent. yes well that's, ob- is fantastic. that's obviously a big fan yeah. of ron swanson and, absolutely you know, i want to do that good. 
And I also thought yeah. because of the book we're reading, look, it's sort of in the same. I'm not yeah. going to give away the book just yet. I mean, we all soon anyway, but it's, <laughs> you know, at least in the same. Re anyway, I just, but I've just for the first time actually enjoying drinking it. It's actually quite nice. So anyway, I'm cheers. Glad, you're, glad you're into it. Cheers. I think I am. Yeah. I don't know. Like I wince yeah. every time I have a sip. Hmm. Must say, if you if Lagavulin is your first, my, my my first whiskey was a similar one. It was a Lafroig, which is peaty. Lafroig, yeah, that's a mm. that's a strong first choice. So you're you know you you you've started the game on the highest difficulty. So you're going to be you're going to be the king of this game. Well, that, <laughs> I went to YouTube and I typed in how to yeah. drink whiskey, and it said to put a little bit of ice water in there. And so I've yeah. done that, and I don't know whether or not I'm stepping on some like when having it neat and um, but whatever. I ah. actually find it takes away a bit of the power of it, so I can actually enjoy some of the flavors. I'm definitely, definitely, it. water breaks up the alcohol a bit. Like yes. I I'd usually start without, and then maybe if it needs it, have a little bit. My my father-in-law is so particular about this; he has a pipette that he puts individual drops. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, see that. I, I only hope to get to. I only hope to get to that sort of level with it. Um, just as long as you don't put coke in it, that's all right. You'll be all right. <laughs> I actually heard having it on the rocks, like on the rocks, to have it with ice is actually a bit of a faux pas. You're not supposed to do that, apparently. Is that right? Uh, is that not, what... not not for me? Okay, it's not for me. But... If that's how you want to do it, that's fine. But um, that's not for me. You just get a um, just get a watery whiskey. If you're gonna do yeah. that, you might as well have a. That's fine, but have a um, have a blend. Don't use a single malt. You know that's single malt. Yeah. Like, you know, single malt's like the good couch. It's the good couch at home. You know, you, yeah. you only use it every now and again. Yeah, but yeah. Don't yeah. put ice. <laughs> <laughs> that special room that I was never allowed to go into room. my friend's house. I still remember oh, yeah. Trent's mum forbade us from going into this one room, <laughs> and I never saw anyone in there. But it looked really immaculate every time. Looks great. In, yeah. Enjoy it however you like, right? That's the vibe. Damn right. Yeah, that's the vibe. That's the vibe. All right. So um, very excited to talk to you. Um, uh, obviously, too, because your debut, Locust Summer, has really just come out. Like it's been a few months now, but it's still a new baby yeah, out right. in the world. So I'm really excited to talk to you about that as well um, in regard to um, – and sort of framing it in around the book that we've decided. But I want to just start by talking um, about how it's going, how, you know, how you're finding things, how's the journey, obviously, in, in our current world. Um, a lot of people having their books released, it's become quite difficult publicity-wise and things like that. But how has things been going with Locust Summer? It's been going pretty well, thanks. And also it's been good to have your name on the back cover. <laughs> yes, I was honored honored to do that. Yes, absolutely. But no, it's been it's been really good. Thanks. I mean, um, it came out during the last lockdown that Perth had, WA yeah. had. So that was that sort of put everything up in the air. But you know, I'm, it's very small beer compared to what everyone on the Eastern States is going through. So it's been yeah. from that from that point of view, it's been fine. Um, WA is largely open, so people can go to the bookstores. So the reception in WA has been just a shade uh to the left of normal you know it's, yeah. it's been really i had I, I was able to have a launch party which was fantastic mm. um some of my fellow Fremantle press authors haven't you know they're in lockdown in berlin 
places like that. They 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 can't even wow. They can't have launch parties. So I'm I'm just taking whatever I can with both hands, and I've been able to do a lot of uh, promotional events or that kind of thing within Perth. But as far as talking to people in the east, that's been pretty hard. Yeah. So I kind of it, it's been a bit of a strange journey in that um it came out and made a lot of noise, and you know as the author, I guess the firework goes off in your head, and you have a great you have a great time. But then I have no idea how this book's doing. But the nicest part is that I have been getting messages from readers. You know, they, yeah. they email me and they say, you know, I really relate to that because my grandfather went through something similar or there was a, a similar thing in my in my own family or my friend had this. So my editor, Georgia Richter, at Fremantle Press said to me before this all went down, she said, not only will it not be your book anymore, you're not that people are going to come back to you not even with your own story they're just going to come mm-hmm. back to you with their story because that's yep. you know that's that's one of the powers of art that that through empathy we we create our own imaginations and so that's that's been really gratifying uh but I, i've had a bit of an interesting experience in the last couple of weeks actually because um i went on a writing retreat you know it seems like you know, are you, are you supposed to do that after you just launched a book? But I've, you know, like, like any writer, I've always got, I've always got another book going. And this sure. house, John Curtin's the um, World War II prime minister, hmm. great labor hero. He's got a, a beautiful old house in Cottesloe, which is an extremely posh suburb now, but back in the day, you know, it was very working class. So I got to go live in this like old, you know, clapboard house in the middle of the most Lani suburb in all of, in all of yeah, Perth. Wow. For, two weeks you know bless my wife for giving me the time off to do it so Mm. that that was good because it allowed me to work on something creative and get out of that promotional headspace or that that um sure yeah uh which was very refreshing and Mm. now i've come back out of that with a with a new draft of something and also sort of fresh eyes for locust summer so I'm just That's enjoying awesome. it. I'm enjoying the ride, you know. And so that was that was two weeks. Yeah. Did did you have like a? Did yeah. you cut off from like internet and things like that, or did you check in once a day, or how did you work with tech? Because I always find when you're trying to concentrate on something creative and give yourself the space and time to sort of think about that, it um, technology and and social media and things like that can sort of suck a lot of the the thought and the mental energy um from you and put it into something different so did you cut that off or did you have that on or how did you work with that sort of thing i tried to cut it off as much as i can i mean i think it was Hard Hemingway when you said, book just coming out right absolutely just coming out <laughs> I mean, Hemingway said <laughs> Hemingway said the telephone and visitors are the work destroyers i think that was him but um mm. and that's about right but so social media is the constant telephone and the constant interruption from people so i as much yep. as i could I, I switched it off and i had certain times that i'd contact my wife or contact my family and i'd check in if i needed to do stuff but largely i tried to live as though it was the 1940s which was <laughs> pretty easy with a hills ho- it was a hills hoist in the backyard that you could you could put a cricket team on oh so, <laughs> yeah I, I but what i find as well is that um i've noticed this about myself when i'm writing it's that um, I mean, Stephen Pressfield, uh, the writer, great writer, he has a book out called The War of Art. Have you read that one? No, or I haven't Turning read that Crow. one. Pressfield wrote the original book, Gates of Fire, that inspired Frank Miller to write 300, the right. graphic novel which inspired the 300 movies, so all about the battle at Thermopylae and the Greeks yep. having the past. But he wrote this great book about how you should go about a creative life, kind of like from a... Um, 
it's very steak and potatoes kind of writing, but he labeled the fear that you can have inside your own mind creatively as resistance. So it's this resistance that you have to battle every day. And I find one of my uh, instances of resistance is social media or the internet where I'll be writing away. And if I don't have it turned off at the wall, Mm. I'll get to a difficult point in the, in the writing and just go, I wonder what's happening in the news and I'll bug out. And instead of sitting with that problem and actually trying to bash through it or even just sit with it and just meditate on it and work through it or let it go and just be still, I'm choosing a distraction to kind of lessen the pain of having to do that. <laughs> so, which, which is classic. It's just classic addiction. You know, that that's classic uh, behavior for that kind of thing. It's like, yeah, I, guess oh, so. I can't be bothered going to the gym, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have some extra honey on the, on the, on the wheat picks or whatever, but sure. um, I've noticed that about myself. So I really do try if, if I am in a creative space, I just, I just switch it off as, as much as I possibly can and stare out the window think someone i heard someone say you got to remember like well he's you know how did tolstoy do it it's like well he stared out the window a lot you got to remember you know it was bleak cold 18th century russia there wasn't much else to do but in Not staring out of the yeah. window you know all of that all that came in so i guess that's what i try to do as much as i can that's awesome i've never had i've never been on a retreat it's something i've wanted to do um yeah well, the closest I came was I um, when I did the publicity tour for Snake Island. I um, mm. I hired a little um, a van, like a camper van, with a bed in the back, and I drove that all the way down from Queensland to my hometown in wow. Victoria. And so I stopped in Canberra and Sydney and stuff. But that's sort of been the most the, the biggest chunk of dedicated time I've really had yeah. to um, creativity and I guess my writing career. You know, I put it in. Um, quotation marks, but like that part of me. I put mine in I'll, double quotes at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Mine's a double, yeah. And obviously, you know, looking back, I mean, that was such a, a huge thing. Like, I'm so grateful I got to do that because that was in 2019. Yes. Um, but it, um, it, it's, it was, it was refreshing to have that time to spend um, concentrating on it. And I, I find, you know, obviously in Australia, we have so many people who are, wonderful writers who don't make the 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 main source of income from the art that they generate which is its own thing as well like obviously if you're generating art based on making money from it it can sometimes people think that can corrupt the integrity of the art like what are you actually saying you're trying to sell copies of a book or what whatever we get past all that but it um yeah i find i find being creative in the edges seems to be more of the norm in Australia. And it, um, it's such a difficult thing. It's such a difficult thing. Very, very, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's funny you say I'm really struggling with it myself at the moment because I think that's been one of the most in I heard this thing the other day. It was that every writer kind of has to go through a period of mourning for what they thought things were going to be like. And then you actually... <laughs> You actually, you actually embrace what things are like because that means then you can be yourself. And mm. I really feel what you mean. You know, I still have a day job. I still, I still, I work in communications. You know, I've been a journalist for a long time. And um, part of me is like, damn it, wouldn't it be great to just you know ditch all that? But then um, I'm always, I love this quote by Orson Welles where he says, "The absence of limitations is the enemy of art." And I, that always that sustains me. I'm like, well, you know, Wilfred Owen wrote some of the best 
you know, poetry ever when he was, you know, convalescing after being in the trenches. I mean, mm. what's my bloody excuse? And and it is frustrating in the sense that um, it would be nice to just have all that time, all the yeah. time. Yeah. To like, like, because that's the thing. Writing retreats are great, but they're Shangri La. They they really are. Um, <laughs> I've been to Varuna in in the Blue Mountains, which was a life changing experience, and it was a game changer for Locust Summer. Um, that changed everything about that book. But yeah, right. the whole time, um, when at, at, when I was at the desk, there was a note in the in the top drawer. Um, opened the top drawer, and there was a cigarette and a lighter and a little note that said, "This desk is yours for fourteen days." use them very well. And it was like, whoa. Like, so no pressure or anything. Uh, yeah. But I kind of like that. I mean, like myself, you know, you, you know, you're a teacher still, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, and that, that, teacher. that, that's, the, yeah, that's the fuel. That's, that's the day to day. And then, and yeah. then in the, in the, in the margins we create to become a whale. Yeah. Snake <laughs> Island. And we do locust summer. And, and I, I just, as difficult as that is, and um, and in a lot of ways, you know, I, I read a lot of stuff about the art sector. Everyone's like, you know, we should, it should be as valuable as mining. And I completely agree. I think there's also something very noble about that, about keeping on going no matter what, mm. because we have to bring these these visions to life and we have to share them. And in doing that, that's its own reward. That's kind yeah. of been hard to get my head around. Uh, no, I agree. Because you that. know all these things. You know, you like you know all these things, but before the book comes out, but actually having to live through that is a different proposition altogether. Yeah, no, so I agree. Been, I think that's been tough. Um, and I, I think that's true too. Like, I think that a lot of a lot of it does like fitting it in around the margins, but also like living all this life yeah. and stuff. Yeah, and I guess you know when you talk about it, um, you know, we just started school holidays up here, but I find I have yeah. I, I'm far less productive in school holiday time because I just, there's no, there's no, I don't go, okay, I've got this half hour to write. I better sit down and write. I've just got (laughs) hours upon hours, but then I just end up. And I mean, you've got to rest and you've got to, you know, restore and all those things are really great too. But I do, I do think that if I hadn't have been working all this time, I wouldn't have produced much at all. You know, I think it does add to that sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, We better get to the actual book. I mean, eventually. Um, <laughs> all right. So the book that you've chosen for us to discuss today, um, yes. I really love this because this is he's one. I haven't read a lot of his books, but he is uh, an author who I really, really admire. I've read about three or four of his books. Um, but it's Graham Greene. And the book you chose was The Quiet American. Um, That's right. Yeah. And I love this book. Um, I read it a few years ago. But I just wanted to ask you, like, what, what is it about this book? Because, you know, this podcast, I ask authors, what is the book you want to talk about? And you chose this book. Why did you choose this book today? There's two reasons. Um, one is, for me, it was a gateway drug. It was a gateway drug to so many other books. Mm. And also, it was a book that gave me the model for Locust Summer. It was the structural and um, I'll start with the locust stuff first. Um, yeah, I'd because, love to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Because one of the most profound reading experiences I've had is I read Wake in Fright in two hours, the book Wake in Fright, but I think it's, is it Kenneth Cook? An Australian book. It's extremely slim. That's no, an amazing uh, it's book. All, you know, 
It's an amazing book. And it just, I had, I had to kill two hours and I was in the library and my fingers magic. You know, I don't believe in looking for any, uh, looking for a book. I think the book finds you, especially in a bookstore. So you just, <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, water divining. So I managed to magnetize myself to that book and I sat down and I just, I just devoured it in two mm. hours. I couldn't stop reading. And I thought, what an incredible thing to do in that, in that it's a literary book, but it also had the qualities of the best propulsive thriller that I'd, that I'd ever encountered. And I thought, it's absolutely wow, a page turner. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. How did this guy do this? And then I'm like, okay, well, what's another book that I really, really love is that it's the quiet American Graham Greene. Why? Because it has that page turning quality, but it's also extremely literary and it's also deeply considered and it's very, it's just very, very well constructed. And it's above all, it's a confession story. It's a horrible, grimy confession story of a guy. <laughs> he's, a, he's the most unreliable narrator ever. Yeah. Thomas Fowler. Every time Thomas I go, Fowler. you know, if you, there's toilets called Fowler's. You know, that's, that's a manufacturer of toilets. And I, I, th- I think that's maybe where he got the inspiration for the name from. But <laughs> the thing funny. that always stuck with me about that is it's a confession story. It's a strange, and that is, uh, I think, a largely unsung genre of, of book. And so when I came to write, write Locust Summer, I really struggled with who is this narrator? Why is he telling this story? Mm. Why, why would anyone bother to tell this story? And I thought, he's confessing. It's a confession story. So it's a, Locust Summer is certainly promoted as a coming-of-age story or a twist on the rite of passage, and it definitely has all those elements, but I've always thought of it as a confession story, that it's a, a guy looking back on his life and telling you everything, yeah, unvarnished, totally truthful, in, in a way that Thomas Fowler and The Quiet American doesn't quite tell you everything. I mean, well, he sort not of, to try he, to spoil it. No. Yeah, he leaves he, it very open. He does. He leaves it open, but he does... I feel like as the novel progresses, he does end up become. Mm. He sort of leads himself up to the thing to the he point. does want to actually confess, and it yes. just. But it takes him a while to get there. He doesn't start off yes. with being um, truthful, which is really interesting. Um, so you were talking there. Sorry, if you wouldn't mind just going back just mm. a second to this idea of sure. like um, the the literary page turner, because it's something I'm very yes. invested in as well. Like I love absolutely. I love a book that, that, you know, you're turning a page is wondering what's going to happen, but is still with these big ideas. And Graham Greene himself was, he, I think he even divided his novels into two separate camps. And he had this real entertainments. <laughs> yeah, yes, the entertainments. Yeah, so he had entertaining books, but then he had his literary books. So mm. he had... Um, and see, I, I'm, you know, I'm not certain of the different distinctions. I don't know where Brighton Rock would fall. I think that would probably be I a think bit that more was an a, entertainment. Yeah, yeah, and then he had things Power like and the Power glory. and the Glory, yes, which is probably Stunning. my favourite. Yeah. yeah, probably Stunning. my favourite book of his. Yeah, um, that I've read. But do you think that there is like a like a real clear distinction the way Graham Greene sort of made it, or do you think? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I just, I just find. What is it? I guess what is the difference? What's the difference in your mind between something that is literary and something that's entertaining? And then where are those lines blurred? It's a really good question. Um, I kind of see, I'm no scholar, but I don't think Locust could be considered a postmodern novel. I like modernist novels. I like the turn of the century stuff. So um, you know, Henry Miller and Lawrence Durrell, that kind of deeply unfashionable 
uh, writers and writing, but I still take the lessons from them because because I dig it. Um, the Quiet American itself is um, based on another book called The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford, who wrote Parade's End, the great trilogy about, no, quadrilogy about the First World War. And that in itself is a confession story. So uh, Green loved that story so much. He thought, well, you know, I'm going to write my own version of, of The Good Soldier. So <laughs> I definitely see that Green thought of The Quiet American as an entertainment, but I think the world doesn't. The world takes it as a serious literary work and also a serious work of political fiction. But I think the thing that Graham Greene is as well is he was a journalist like me. He was a journalist. And he's often derided as a Catholic journalist. All, all of his little literary critics always just dismissed yeah. him as, oh, he's just, he's, just a, he's just this Catholic dude saying all this moral stuff and he's just a journalist. And meanwhile, his stuff was way more considered than that. He used his journalistic training and his style to, to give the book that spine of believability and reality. But then he also used his his spiritual beliefs to, in the foreword of, of my copy of the, of the Quiet American, Zadie Smith talks about this, that his Catholicism is used as a system so that he understands that people are flawed, that we are all sinners and we are all you know, deeply flawed individuals. And it's not about who's good. It's about how we fail and how we try not to fail. And so mm. from that, I think he has great sympathy for his characters and his characters come off as real. They don't come off as, um, as sort of stereotypes. Uh, Fung is, is definitely a stereotype. I'll correct myself there, but I think that's <laughs> intentional. That's yeah. intentional that she has, she has no agency, whereas her sister has quite a lot of agency. Yeah. So that he's very conscious of, you know, you can, you can, you can definitely pick this stuff apart, but I think he's also very conscious of, of power structures and hierarchies and what the way that's presented. So that gives the book a, such a deep quality that I think it's utterly page turning, but it's written in a way that's very, very accessible. And so I took, uh, like sort of sort of like a mechanic taking parts to make my own engine yeah that's what i wanted i was like i want the page qualities of uh wake and fright but i want that that moral realism that that's from the quiet american and what i like the most about the quiet american is that he takes his character seriously he doesn't just think oh how am i going to get them to move through the story and get tell the story that i want to it's almost like he they led him into temptation so mm-hmm. I really, I, I, that, that's always very appealing to me. It's a, it's a grubby story. It's a yeah, story it's that not... you come away from going, geez, but it's also truthful. Yeah, You can definitely I, see all of that happening. I think that's one of the things that I would say points it in the direction of being mm. um, less. And again, I, you know, I love entertainment as much as the next person and I'm not deriding sure. entertainment books no, no. at all by saying any of this, but I think... Just the I read way Jack that, Reacher, love it. Yeah, exactly. But the way the book <laughs> ends it. is so dark. There's no, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it's a very dark ending and it's not, it's, it reminded me of like, actually, no, it's, this is a stupid equation. <laughs> you remember when, have you seen Toy Story 3? You have obviously because you have yeah, children. Yeah. All right, the scene, <laughs> yes, the scene, the scene, actually, you know what? Here's, here's, a, here's the equation. Toy Story 1, when Woody, right, is becoming jealous of Buzz because Buzz is usurping his place in um, Andy's favourite toys. So if Woody had then just knocked Buzz off the desk, 
and Buzz had fallen out of the window and then been crushed by a car. And then Woody just looked in horror on as this Buzz got hit by the car and all these little rocket pieces went everywhere and then cut to black credits. That would be Graham Greene. (laughs) (laughs) Toy Story by Graham Greene. Yeah, don't you think like that's the version would be even crazier? (laughs) Oh my gosh! But that do you know what I mean? Like that's that's the type of ending it is. Like it's like this guy he 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 had this he had set upon him this idea of this is what I want, and I'm going to do whatever I can to get this thing that I want, and I'm going to corrupt myself morally maybe because he's a bit ambiguous about his own distinctions into what's right and what's wrong and all that sort of stuff. But in the end, he is left having everything he wanted, but he has that corruption still in him, which, you know, if I'm reading, if I'm reading entertainment, I don't, when I want, I want to, I want an ending. That's the hero is heroic and I want the villain. I want Buzz to be an evil character when he gets struck by that car. And I want all the other toys to go, yay. The evil buzz is gone, like Toy Story three with the pink bear. What's his name? What's a huggy bear? Oh, anyway, buddy. I've gone on with yeah. Toy Story. Change it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like that's what I want from entertainment. So that ending in this book sort of speaks to me. Like he was doing something a little different. I think. I don't think he was aiming. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think he was aiming to get people to really consider what his characters were doing in a way that what's evil. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I guess that's going back to his Catholicism a little bit, right? Like what, yeah, yeah what is evil and what is not? And, and it's really interesting that Fowler himself is an avowed atheist in the book as well, which Indeed. I found interesting, yeah. Very interesting. No, I agree. And, and as I was saying before, like he takes the character seriously. He takes, he takes the reader seriously. He, he says, okay, well, I can actually present sophisticated things to a readership and also in a way that's accessible. So yeah. the whole book is, you know, it's it's a it's a reflection on well, what's evil? The, both both men, both Pyle and Fowler, are doing great evil, but Pyle's yep. doing it with the best of intentions, and Fowler is doing it through utter self denial of mm-hmm. of who he is, mm-hmm. and then take that as a metaphor for the colonial countries in Vietnam doing these great missions. Take that as a metaphor for corporations, lawyers, everything that we do in our day to day lives. It's it's an extremely sophisticated thing. And it's why I like books like that, where you don't have to write great triple decker Victorian flowery impenetrable postmodern stuff that, that just puts the reader off, nor do you need to debase yourself so much to the reader that you're, you're basically (laughs) writing a a kid's book. I I think it's one of the, a great example of a book that manages to fuse the two styles together really perfectly. Yeah. and that that's that's what I what I want to do in my own writing is I I want to write about serious subjects I want to write about it in a sophisticated way because I believe that people want to read about that kind of stuff. Mm. On the other hand, I don't want to lecture people and I don't want to I don't want to bore them. So what do you how do you do that? Well, the best compliment I ever got. Can I swear? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> cool. The best comp- compliment I ever got was from another writer who just said, "Geez, Dave, you really don't fuck around." <laughs> And that's that was the best compliment. I was like, good, because I I know I admire writers who can write big, thick books with chunky, like I love Salman Rushdie. I could never write like that. 
Yeah. I just don't, that's just not my, it's not because I don't have the brain it's just, or the soul. It's just, it's just not my style, man. It's, not it's just you. not yeah, how it's I not fight. You. It's not me. That's good. But it doesn't mean that I can't contain those ideas within short, sharp sentences, within, you know, finely structured things like that. So that's the way that you work. But that's, yeah. that's interesting that's too. The that then obviously the ideas are given expression through the way that you yeah. attack them, which I guess is, you know, part of the joy of reading is finding all these ideas in different voices and tones yeah. and, and, and um, settings and all those sorts of things. Um, one of the things I think points to it too, um, there's that great scene in the book where I think they're in like a guard tower and they're sort of stuck yes, there overnight. That. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's just like they argue for ages and you just hear like these really well-rounded characters with really, um, I would say authentic ideas of themselves. Like they are authentic to who they are as people. And one doesn't come out in my mind, at least one doesn't come out feeling stronger than the other. They're both given equal oh. weight. And it's like, um, Green had this great ability to inhabit these, like the polar opposite ide ideological views, but at the same time, both are given equal measure. So we're not feeling like that thing that you were saying, we're not feeling lectured at, we're not feeling no, not like feeling he's led. peeking out yeah. to sort of be didactic and, <laughs> and yell at us about his own ideas. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, you're right. A, a commercial treatment of the book would have that scene completely different. It would be, yeah. it would be. It would be on. I always think of it like like when you play computer games, when you play um, first person shooters. Mm -hmm. I used to always, I used, we you know the the on rails effect. I always hate that where like you're being led through the levels, <laughs> like you're on rails, and it's like how much agency do I actually have here? Like I, yeah, you know I, I want to go off the rails a bit, I, and it's like all action but safe. You know, it's like the Willy Wonka ride. You know, you it's a terrible thing, but you're safe within that that weird thing that he's got. You, know, you want to you want to feel slightly out of control, and and that's what I think literature like the Quiet American can do. So, um, but I want to say something as well. I, I've I've assembled some books for you. Sure. Um, so I did say it was a gateway drug. So, right. Yes. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing where this leads. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, Quiet American for me was I read The Quiet American after we studied Heart of Darkness, Joseph Campbell's Heart of Darkness, which mm -hmm. is sort of the uh, definitive post-colonial text. It inspired, um, I think it was Michael Herr to write Dispatches, and then he was one of the guys who wrote Apocalypse Now. Yeah, Great stuff. But, you know, a very controversial text um, these yeah. days because we, yes. we look at it with new eyes, but also one of the first post-colonial texts and it got me thinking okay well how do we actually deconstruct how we live and, and all of the you know uh, the societies that we live in and how they were inhabited and created so mm -hmm. it just leads you down the primrose path to all sorts of other stuff like so um, it led me to vs naipool and to chinua achebe and lots of uh, african writers and um pretty much an obsession with the vietnam war because the vietnam war is uh, it's mind-bogglingly strange. It's an awful war, but it's also why it happened is so it's such folly at every stage that it's yeah. almost Shakespearean. So mm. one of the best writers, I think, about Vietnam is Bernard Fall. He was a journalist. Okay, he was a French journalist. That. Yeah, right. No, it's called Street Without Joy. And he also wrote one called Hell in a Very Small Place. And he died in Vietnam by stepping on a landmine in 1968. And his writings wow. go all the way back to the to the 50s, where they, 
people in Washington had this book and they're reading it going, geez, the French got their butts kicked. Hmm. I can't imagine the same thing happening to us. And then they went mm. in and did the exact same thing. And he warned them at every stage, don't do this. You're, you're being arrogant and Western about this. Like, you know, learn the lessons. Which and that's all pile. infused in, which is pile. And The Quiet American was written in like, I think it was 1958, 1959. Like, it was earlier. From what I read, time. it was like 50, 54, 56. Yeah. Like, yeah. Imagine somebody. Somebody writing a book about the fall of Kabul five years, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and it playing out exactly as they predicted. As that's they the predicted. power of, the, of this writing. It's the, and you know, that, that's one aspect of, of, of art. Art is the ultimate form of truth. So, yeah, Richard Flanagan, uh, Now Road to the Deep North. You can see I've mm. read it a few hundred times. Yeah, Empire I love of the Sun. Just, and one recently, The Committed, Viet Thanh Nguyen. It's a oh, yeah. fantastic book. It's a sequel to one called The Sympathizer. And right. this is this is a Vietnamese writer writing about the Vietnam War, which is wow. so refreshing because we mentioned before um, Fung, the main Vietnamese character, has no agency. Yeah. She has none. Uh, sort of, but that in itself reflects that, you know, the South Vietnamese really didn't have any agency. They were stuck between these great powers that were mm. pushing them around. So it's also reflected. I love about that book. Fowler sort of views her as well like he doesn't yeah. yeah and I guess at the end when he's with her she's she's, she's less yeah she's an obsession she's not a companion she's not a person she's in his mind his opium pipe and gives him a massage and claim yeah. his prize yeah it's just there yeah. yeah um so I just want to move on to talk about book. just a, yeah <laughs> no this is this is what I love to talk about um yeah I guess, I guess a question I'd have for you when we're talking about his Catholicism and his moralizing in his books, um, and then obviously the power and the glory, which is again the one that I, yes, that one was a bit more of a gateway drug for me. Like I read that pr- pretty young. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of my friends, Mike, gave me a copy of it. And it was very ratty old, you know, thirty cent store sort of stuff. Um, but what do you think of like the idea of his Catholicism and do you think, do you find him over overly preachy, I guess? And I don't know, I don't know whether the word is preachy, but maybe um, he kind of tends to take his time to really m- be invested in the morals of, of what his characters are doing. Do you, do you find that sort of thing appealing? Like you like reading about that sort of moralizing or is that something that you find or you can imagine maybe readers find a bit of a turnoff with characters. It can be a turnoff in, in the sense that if it's not done well, if, yeah. it's, if it's done too heavy-handedly. But what I, what I like about Green is that it's, he, it's really just a way for him to measure how you fail. It's, it's not a, he's not trying to present the ideal person or the wrong person. I think he uses his Catholicism as a way of exploring human nature. And I think he's mm. quite open-minded with all this stuff. It never feels prescriptive. It never feels, um, you know, he was always criticised, oh, he's just, you know, he's just that Christian writer. Mm. But you read the stuff and you're like, well, you know, this is this is Old Testament. This isn't necessarily <laughs> New Testament kind of stuff. This is this is pretty, pretty far in brimstone. And it's very, what I like about it as well is that it's honest. He's not trying to present people as they should be. He's presenting them as they are in all of the, in all of their vanity and all of their, uh, foolishness and, and ignorance, but always trying. And that, that's, 
like we were saying before, I, I like how he's always on that edge of, you know, the road to the hell is paved with good intentions and that people always have these good intentions. But they, I mean, did, did you ever see the movie Downfall with, about, the, about Hitler and the bunker? No. It's, I think it's, I, it's, I actually might have seen it, actually. I'm more aware of yeah. the meme of, of Hitler meme, yelling. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. yes. That's my world nowadays. But, um, yeah, go on. Sorry. What were you going to say? It's the most terrifying example I've ever seen of how even though people can, we think of them as evil, they think they're right. Yes. You know, he thought he was right to the end. And that's human nature in all of its terrifying uh, reality that it's really easy for us to say there is evil, but that sort of abrogates a lot of responsibility. It's, <laughs> it's What I like about Green is that he always shows it's a choice and it's a perception and it's always based in self-denial or, or delusion. And that yeah, and I, I guess apparently the thing glory saying, is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. sorry, go on. Apparently, the glory is really interesting because it's a priest. You know, it's someone yes. who who is trying to do good works, but it explores his motivations and why he's doing that. And that's that's yes. what I like. He doesn't spare anybody. And that's whereas somebody um, perhaps who wasn't so invested in those morals might try to depict morals and do it in a really, you know, ham-fisted way that that comes off not mm. genuine. Because you have to you have to you have to feel these things in order in order to critique them in order to to explore them. Yeah, and I guess what you're saying there too is like it's and maybe what Green is getting at too is it's easier to to point out how the world is evil and how all these other people outside of ourselves are doing all these yeah. awful, terrible things. But it's another thing to then turn that lens onto yourself, yourself, which I guess Fowler really doesn't do dramatically <laughs> that well. He's not. Though. reflective he sort of feels he sort of feels entitled a lot of the time to a lot of the things that he does and sort of and self justifies is, mm. yeah. his jealousy is amazing I, I love the scene where he breaks in he busts into the i guess what is the cia headquarters in mm. america to, to confront pile and to try and win fung back and and he break has that breakdown in the toilets and he goes you know oh my goodness even there even their toilets are air-conditioned just the the pure hate in that sentence that that and i think it's also a really good example just the style of that instead of actually saying i was jealous or i felt great jealousy green always finds these ways to depict all of these things with the most perfect metaphor the most perfect line that leaves you in no no doubt about what he means but he never yeah. directly says it and mm. that's i think that's great respect for you as a reader that he, yes, he makes you work he makes you read yeah. properly and not just yeah, yeah. Yeah, but just um, that pure jealousy. What what a great way of putting that, and just that observation. <laughs> I mean, now, at the another another thing, um, I'll, I'll bang on about a bit is um, no, I love no. Tom Wolf. Tom Wolf's a fabulous writer, and and at the very front of my now disintegrated copy of uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, he has a essay called uh, "Stalking the Billion Footed Beast," which is all about literature and why 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 literature struggles to actually talk about things that that are contemporary and that are happening right now. And one, yeah. Oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. That's okay. <laughs> no, no. We can edit this, right? Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. No worries. Um, but I, I wouldn't mind if you're if you're okay. I wouldn't mind turning to this idea yep. of ide idealism versus realism because that's a big part of it. You yes. know, sort of pile is this I, I, idealist. He 
and he's arrogant and he's full of pride, he's full of nationalism, he's full of his own country's power to to push and the rightness of all the things that he does and honour and all these sorts of questions. But then Fowler sort of represents this idea of uh, a type of realism, um, sort of seeing the world as it is, not as you want it to be. But I was wondering about your own sort of idea about those two separate things, about whether or not, because I've, I've been thinking about writing and the power of art and the power of what a novel can do. And I feel like to set out onto actually creating a, a piece of writing, you have to sort of, you have to be an idealist in a way. Yeah. Like for, for me, like, for me to think that any sort of words that I've written have actually impacted a person, like if I was just a realist about what words were on a page, I don't know whether I would have written those words. You sort of have to embrace this high-minded ideal, but at the same time, you sort of have to recognize that there is limitations to what art can do. That art is a kind of privilege in and of itself that I've even having time to think you know, when we were talking earlier about yeah. not having all the time in the world, that we have any time at all to think about anything to do with yeah. what morality is or those these big ideas is an absolute privilege. So I don't know, like, what are your thoughts about those two extremes and can they coexist and, and how is this book sort of making us question these things? I think somewhere in between is probably where you find your answer in mm. that at least from from the perspective of writing Locust Summer, inspired by Graham Greene, I found that uh, a friend of mine did a an art project where she helped to put big murals on the silos, and she made a book out of that. And at every at a couple of stages, some of the farmers actually came up to her and said, "Don't you dare romanticize our life out here. It's hard. This is a hard life out here." And so, in writing Locust Summer, I I was about the farm and naturally we have a romantic idea of what farming and rural life is all about. Yes. And that's interesting in that I explore that through Rowan, the protagonist, his, his idea of what he should be, this romantic farmer, this noble man, this, all, all this kind of stuff. And then the reality of what he actually is and what he feels and how those two tectonic plates just grind him to pieces mm-hmm. because he lacks, he lacks the strength to actually push them away and, and, and be his own person and accept things. So I, I like that in, in The Quiet American that, there, that there, is, there are these two forces. There's, there's pile on the one hand with we need to find the third way for, for uh, the future of Southeast Asia and we need to be the ones to impose it and we're doing this for the right reasons. But that leads him to, you know, conduct a terrorist bombing, one of the most awful Awful scenes in that book is is that scene. It, it yeah, absolutely. Three lines, two or three lines that just punch you, and it punches you into Fowler's world where he's the cynic. We're like, yeah, that's just how things go. That's just the the power play of the of the mighty, and we're just the little little mice that have to scurry around. Mm. But his way of looking at the world is so depressing and. It lacks any sort of, it lacks any dream. It, it lacks any any seeds that can grow into anything. Mm. And so what are, what are we left with? Are we supposed to be a bit of this or a bit of that? Or are we supposed to be something in between? Yeah. And that's, there is no answer for that. There is no answer that's presented, but perhaps that's the state of being human, that that we don't have a definitive answer between the two, but we have to keep trying. Mm. You know, we, yeah, we, we, live off the, we live off the heat of the friction. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good answer, man. Thank you for that. Um, I, you know what, this, well, you know what, the question was not from me. This, I've been reading about, I'm reading the book and reading about the book, but this is a quote from the book that I've pulled out, which I thought, and it speaks directly to what we've talked about just now. It says, um, this is from Fowler, when he says, thoughts are luxury. Do you think the peasant sits and thinks of God and democracy when he gets inside his mud hut at night? So that we have this so privilege. Arrogant. Yeah, so yeah. they see, and then there, it's the cynic, right? He's the cynic. Yeah. And so he's the one who doesn't think that anyone is able to have these thoughts and that he he's sort of like, yeah, he's so full of pride and of himself. Like he's, he's the only one who sees the world as it is, which is funny because it's the same exact thing that Pyle thinks as well, hey, that they're the only That's right. Conduit it all just comes to... back on itself. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. lazy colonial power, this arrogance that, that Western countries tend to have, you know, that we mm. know best and that, you know, you, it's, it's like I read a, a writer called um, years ago as a journalist, um, PJ O'Rourke, and he said, like, you know, you've got to remember he's writing about invading Iraq for the first time uh, during, the, during the Gulf War, the Persian Gulf War. We pushed them out of Kuwait. He said, like, you know, we're going to a place that invented algebra. They've been writing, you know, our, our numbers are Arabic numbers. You know, they have been living perfectly well before we, we show up. And we rock up yeah. with, you know, discmans and all kinds of other stuff. <laughs> and we think we can just boss them around. And they're looking at us like, give me a break. Like, yeah. just the last couple of weeks have been very, I think, very confronting because, you know, Afghanistan fell. And that, that just popped every last balloon of, of pretension that we had that we could, that, Western countries thought that they could push everybody else around or impose their will on things. Yeah. These echoes come again and again and again throughout history. And you wonder what would happen if, you know, someone higher up actually read The Quiet American and absorbed it. Maybe they would think twice about this stuff. Yeah, or maybe they would come away thinking Pyle Pyle ought to be a revered type of hero and they just skip over that part. (laughs) Yeah, he had the right idea. My God, no. Yeah, just didn't work out quite well enough, but we'll get it right this next time. Um, but I quite like quote. That. It, it's it's the beginning. Sorry, yeah. I was gonna no, say it's it's it's, an, it's a very early example of you know people really starting to question very strongly the hierarchies and power structures that define our societies, and I, that's why I like it. Yeah, it's mm. I think it's easy to critique it now with with modernized, but you know, I think that's the equivalent of going into a museum and laughing at the old engines because they weren't very powerful. You know, he was he was of his time. And yeah. I think if he'd been alive now, he'd be writing some pretty strident stuff. Yes. Um, I, th- I still like, I still think it has its place. Like, uh, you know, I know there are yeah. certain things in there that we might look back on and think that need to be changed. But, uh, you know, oh, I sure. feel like, yeah. well, I feel like, you know, writing is a part of history and obviously it's, it's set. It was written in a time when he was in Saigon, like it was written in the time in which it's set while he was yeah. there. So, uh, yeah, it just feels, it would feel strange to try to moralize it now from a point of view that's 70 years in the future. You know what I mean? Uh, it's a cul-de-sac. Yeah. But yeah. Um, there's another quote here that I really liked, um, which is again from the cynic Fowler. And this is um, when mm. you remember when Pyle, he travels through, um, what does he go through? It's sort of that place where it's sort of like it's really dangerous. Fat, fat, fat diem. I'm not really pronouncing it well. Diem. And he, yeah, he, he, and he comes on the motor launch. Yeah. 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 And then he comes. The only reason he's traveled through, you know, the risking death 
is to tell Fowler that he wants to win the hand of Fong. Yeah, it's Fong, yeah. Which is so strange. It is really strange. But it's completely in character with Pyle. But um, after after he leaves, Fowler is sort of thinking, and he says this, wouldn't we all do better not trying to understand, accepting the fact that no human being will ever understand another, not a wife with a husband, not a parent or a child? Perhaps that's why men have invented God, a being capable of understanding. I think that, I don't know, that quote to me sort of said, what we've been discussing, like this idea of like, well, what can books actually do? Because to me, when I read a book, I don't know whether there's a way to be closer to a person than to read, read a book that they've written, that they've crafted, that they've thought about, that they've invested their life into. I don't know whether there's a more intimate thing, really. I mean, you have conversations with people who you're intimate with in relationships, but I don't know, there's something very specific about the way a mind can connect to another mind through writing. Like, I don't think, I don't know whether Fowler would have been a big, I mean, I know he was a reporter, but I don't know whether he would have been into this, you know, talking about art and talking about hope and all those sorts of things. Yeah. Well, he smoked a lot of opium, so maybe he was <laughs> yeah. four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, but maybe. No, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a good image. It's... um. I, th- I certainly know from my perspective, I, lo- I like to read because you get to walk around in someone's brain for a while. You get mm. to know their their perspective and their, their, and I also like that reading is, it's not prescriptive. It's not like this is the way the world is. I resist anything that's this is how this is. It's this is how I think it is. This is representative. And that's that's, I think that's what great art does. It allows us to get out of ourselves and see the world in a, slightly different way mm. i remember seeing uh pablo picasso's guernica that that magnificent painting you know it's enormous of uh the bombing of guernica and it's terrifying it's absolutely it's a terrifying painting and you come away from it pretty disturbed but that's a good thing because it's the horror of war and it's done in a way that that seeps very deep into your psyche i don't have to go to war to, to know that it's horrible, but having that sort of little bit, little bit of an experience just through a painting is, is a pretty, is a pretty impressive thing because mm. yeah. Like, can we ever truly understand anybody? Well, probably not. That's probably mm. the, that's the pain of being human. We are all ever so slightly different, you know, all of, you know, from our fingerprints to the, to the brachial nodes of our lungs, we're all you know, variations of one stem, but I wouldn't want to be the, exactly the same as another person or I'll completely understand them. No. Uh, it's about finding connection and, and being companions and, and having shared experiences. Uh, it's a bleak thing to say, but, you know, we're born alone and we die alone. But you can accept that or you can resist that. And so yeah. I find, I find what Fowler says pretty bleak, especially from someone whose job it is to understand and report stuff. Yeah. It sounds like someone who's very, who's very tired, who's very heartbroken. Yeah. Uh, but it brings us to another, I think it brings us neatly to another theme. It's can you ever, can you ever own someone? Because the book is also about possession. Mm. So maybe he doesn't care. He doesn't necessarily care if he doesn't understand Fong, but he certainly wants to possess her. Yeah. So maybe that, and, and that's, that's another, wider theme 
we didn't necessarily want to understand Afghanistan, but we certainly wanted to possess it. We didn't want to, we didn't want to understand Iraq, but we wanted the oil. We didn't want to understand Vietnam, but we wanted to pacify it. Mm. But perhaps if we had taken the time to understand, it would have had a vastly different outcome. So yeah, maybe, and I guess yeah, that, maybe that's the opposite is the point. Yeah, and I guess that's sort of going back to just, you know, the theme of, um, I guess, Pyle and Fowler and just their interactions and like a lot of the time when they're butting heads, um, spending a little bit more time in a way understanding one another and coming to a point where they can sort of find a commonality between each other though they're very different and respecting that difference as well but like the understanding that they're both people and i guess that's maybe part of the point of the book like the realist and the idealist can sort of coexist within us as well probably right to a point with Fowler, at least he's like, mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to a point with Fowler. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got a few just to end on a couple of different things, man. If that's all right, um, sure. I want to just read this quote to you because I, I found this quote from Graham Greene, um, really interesting. He said, Writing is a form of therapy. Sometimes mm-hmm. I wonder how all those who do not write, compose, or paint can manage to escape the madness, melancholia, the panic, and fear which is inherent in every human situation. Which is interesting from him, hey, like Fowler mm. is so such a cynic and he, the whole book was spent in his mind. And I don't know, I find I find that's a weirdly, I find that's a weirdly, like he, he's rooted in a type of realism with that, like he's facing the world as it is and yet there's a hope there still. <laughs> like there is a way, there is a way forward. And to him it was through his writing. Yeah. Do you agree well, with like, that? I uh... like I do, I do. And it, it reminds me, there's a quote, it's a Christopher Koch novel, Australian uh, Year of Living Dangerously, that uh, one of the characters is a journalist and that uh, one of the other characters is a photographer, says, you know, you, you risk becoming the, failed, the, the cynicism of a failed romantic. You know, it, romantic, romantics are inevitably crushed because the world yeah. is a twisted place that, that does not really tolerate romance but it craves it and we as humans love romance we have shangri-la visions so maybe our writing is a way of uh it's not necessarily like aesop's fables where we're, you know we're, we're creating moral stories for ourselves that help us get through life but it's creating depictions of life that help us to understand it mm. uh, I, I remember listening to um i think it was a, a, a podcast about people who were putting on greek tragedies mm. for soldiers in the united states who had post-traumatic stress disorder because they're like do you know what this is this these plays we think of them as 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 just you know english or whatever uh, as just as just plays but these are ancient greek t- pieces of technology this is this is, <laughs> this is a they would gather people from all around each year and they would say here's the play and everyone would watch the play and most of the people watching the play just, you know, returned from fighting the Thracians or whatever. Yeah. So they were a bit, you know, so they were feeling not not great. And they were feeling, you know, how difficult it is to reintegrate yourself. But then through seeing the play, they're healed. And that's, I read a good book, I feel better. I watch a great TV show, I feel better. It's not just escapism. If something's just for escapism, that's fine. You know, a block of chocolate is, is escapism, but... You know, eating a nice, nice steak with some vegetables is also good too. So, <laughs> if if you can read, if you can read a book that that's the equivalent of that, 
or the equivalent of a good workout session, then perhaps good, that's good whiskey. There's some good whiskey. God damn you. Yeah. Like yeah. that that's perhaps that is the closest we will get to understanding. Mm. And you know, I'm I was raised Catholic. I'm not Catholic anymore, but um one of the things that I was was really blown away by was the notion of the mystery. You don't have to understand it. Yeah. You know, that's we can try, but you don't have to and that, and that's fine and i don't know that perhaps that's the answer i'm not sure but what makes us human is constantly questioning and seeking answers and doing stuff because you know we we are a, we are a busy bunch of buzzing bees a lot of the time yes yes we are but, uh, <laughs> yeah and if and we sat still maybe we would part of the downfall of both pile and fowler then is sort of where they think yeah. they have the answer you know yeah and that's that's so seductive where you think you have the answer when mm. you have the answer you have you have motive and you have it leads you down some dark paths but mm. yeah I, I must say as well the film version of quiet america with michael kane in it is very good but i was always let down by the ending because it shows him happily ever after really you know, kind of yeah so sort of, he's, he's, i've never he stays seen in vietnam yeah, he stays in Vietnam. He gets together with Fong, and they, they they stay together, and they're happily married. And it kind of gives it's like a little coda that that I think at least gives it leaves gives her a little bit more agency and gives her a little bit more of a happy ending. But it's also kind of like uh, he just took the sting out the tail. Yeah, jeez, I didn't it's know not that. About, yeah, it's kind of not about happy resolution. It's kind of about compromises. And yeah, man, the thing, that the would change that the whole do. thing. That was what we went. We were yeah. talking about entertainment. Like that is that entertainment ending. Hooray, we're yeah. married. And, and yay. what? Yeah. And what else can we do in in the the storm of life other than just try to do our best every day? And what what's our best? Well, you know, it's you're just trying to do what is aligned to you. And I, that's a really good thing about Graham Greene and his characters, and that they all have. You know, everybody wants to rule the world. They they all have great motivations that are distinct. It's not just a bunch of people who sit around a dinner table agreeing with each other. It's a bunch of rocks that are put into a can and shaken. And that's mm-hmm. great. Yeah. It's he calls it entertainment, but it's not cheap entertainment. It's not, you know, just, you know, snapping necks like, you know, Jack Reacher. There's totally a place for that. You know, that's much um it's much deeper than that. So yeah. I always found it interesting that he called The Quiet American one of his entertainments because I was like, really? Am I wrong for liking this book? Have I I chosen the cheap one? You know, but Uh, but no, I defend it. I I think it's a good one. Yeah, it's funny too. Like maybe we were wrong, you know, to force him to start to make these distinctions between entertainments (laughs) and literary ones, you know. Yeah. 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 um, Just to finish up, um, David, if you wouldn't mind, I've got one last question for you. and it's sort of in line with what we've been discussing, sort of, but it's more in line with talking to other writers and sort of maybe giving them a bit of hope for, you know, emerging writers. And I know that you wrote Locus Summer. I think I've heard you quote 10 years it took. and 10 years. 10 years. Um, I know that Graham Greene um, struggled for a long time, but then he – when he he had it took him three or four books before he found actual success. Yep. He had very yep. poor reviews, and he had to keep going. And I guess you know how how do how did you push forward through those ten years, and how do we keep having hope for 
this, you know, this wild, hopeless endeavor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how do we keep that fire going? A lot of whiskey. No, um, my... <laughs> not too... <laughs> No, not Hemingway, not too much whiskey. Otherwise, no, it that. won't work no, at all. Not too much, no. Mm. It's a, that's a talent killer. No, um, my, it's kind of funny. My, um, my father-in-law is a special forces soldier, and he told me that one of the things they do in training is they, you know, they make you do a lot of physical stuff, and they shout at you, and they yell at you, and they get you to do impossible tasks. And he's like, they're not seeing if you can do it. They could care less if you could do it. They're just seeing if you quit. They don't care about whether you can do 400 push-ups. If you do 350, but you're still trying to do 351, they'll take you over the person resentfully cracking them out. Mm. It's not about it's not about whether you can do it. It's about whether you don't give up. So I did it over 10 years, and that was a at times very confronting and very challenging journey. I had to go through a lot of ego death. I had to really, you know, go well. You know, my book sucks. What can I do about it? And and humble myself and actually take some really harsh lessons, but I never gave up because I was never going to, it's not even about, it's not even a question of, uh, it wasn't a question of this book will be published. It was just, I just want to make this thing the best that I possibly can. And if that's all that happens, then that's all that happens and everything else is a bonus. So I see everything Mm. else as a bonus after that. And if you can, you have to keep going without hope because, um, I think to, to return to Stephen Pressfield, a uh, writer I mentioned before, anyone should check out his books, The War of Art and Turning Pro. Change your life. Yeah, I um, think I will. He basically, he, yeah, he basically says, look, you've got to do this without hope because you love it. There's really nothing else. And there's, there's, you can be an amateur and you can over-identify over, uh, with your craft and with the result and that everything is calibrated from it being published. Or you can be a goddamn professional and shop for work and do your shit because you have to, because that's what, what you do. That's and good, man. He also quotes um, a Hindu text. I won't attempt to say it, but he, he says, you know, the moral of that story is that according to the gods, you are welcome to your labors. You are not welcome to the fruits of your labor. So give the rest to the gods, but work your butt off. The rest is not in your hands. And, and so that, that, that really got me through. And the other thing I would say as well is, yeah, okay, I've got a book out, but it's not like I've reached the top of Mount Everest and, you know, there's a feast being given for me and everything's just, you know, marshmallows and, <laughs> and soft eider downs from now on. It's um, I got to the top of this particular personal mountain and then I've looked out and there's like 4 million other mountains of that are far higher in the distance. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, keep climbing, come on, come into the mountain range and keep climbing. So that's where I'm at. And even that, even saying that, it might, that might sound like all heroic and stuff, but I, that's still a really difficult thing to wrap your head around. No, I can say that, man. Yeah. I'm so totally... I don't know, like, um, yeah. So I'm, no, I'm trying I, to I do just... book two. Yeah. And... Oh, man, book two. <laughs> yeah. How did you do it? Jesus, <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> How did I do book two? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> take another whole podcast man um a big thing with that one one. a big thing with that one was i wrote it before the first one came out at least the first draft so that was okay sneaking it in before when i still had courage yep (laughs) (laughs) sounds melodramatic oh man 
I do, I do, I do agree. Like the idea of like the best things that I've yeah. done, you know, the best things that I consider I've done because whether public perception is the same thing as what I think, I think is very different. But it's always when I let go of that idea of what I'm, what I'm doing is suited to a, a type of person. Like as soon as I let go of, I'm going to write this particular thing to suit this particular thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When I let go of that, I just, I write the thing that I want to write, the thing that just yeah. gets me going, the thing that I'm really excited about. That's when it gets good. That's genuine. Yeah, that's, that's genuine. genuine yeah. And I, that's- I keep on falling into that trap where I keep going back to trying to trying to play a market or something silly like that or reading a review and thinking, oh, I'll do this and this and this. It's... I always have to come back to the thing that makes me interested in what I do. And I think that's where you get that sort of that, that fire of that thing that makes reading interesting writing. At least that's the hope, right? I agree. That's why we do it. That's, that's a hundred percent why anyone would be, would, would be stupid enough to do this. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's, you just have to, it's not a, um, uh, just for my own personal thing, I'm I'm kind of a reluctant writer. I I I I finally listened to that nagging voice in my head when I was about 28, and then I started doing it. And I was like, "Damn it! Why didn't I do this before?" Mm. It just you know, they, it makes me happy to do it. Mm. I have terrible days. I have great days. I have indifferent days, but I have days. That's that's the main thing. And I know I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad I never gave up, but at the same time, um, there was a there was a fair amount. I, I'll tell you about. Um, there was there was a point that I reached in the ver- in the toward the final drafts where I was like, I will finish this thing or I will die in the attempt. And I was all <laughs> and I was all, all head up about that. And then I was like, I'll get your head out of your ass. Who cares? Just finish it and make it as best as you can. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is as well, be kind to yourself. It's not, mm. we're not engineers. We're not, we're not, you know, a foreman rushing to, rushing to make, you know, make the steel beams go up on time. It's be kind to yourself because if you, if you force it or you put too much pressure on you, you know, you kill it. Mm. You know, it's got to rise like a souffle. It's got to just <laughs> nice and steady and, and it will, and it will come out, come out as it, as it, as it should. I, I beat myself up so much and I'm like, oh my goodness. So second time around, I've been very kind to myself. That's nice. That's good. Doing... Good on you. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can we'll kill it. Try. You can kill it. You can kill it. You can destroy yeah. your souffle. You can you can overwork it. You know, you can fold in the fl- I don't know how to make souffle. I don't know where this metaphor is going. But you can, you can kill it by <laughs> by overworking it. But that yeah, you got to keep that magic in somehow, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. You got to keep the ice cubes out of you, out of your whiskey. <laughs> it came back. Oh man, it's almost like we structured this whole that's podcast right. and we circle back. We laid in <laughs> foreshadowing at the start, and it's come back to that. Oh man, what a great way to finish! All right, well, thank you, David and um, David Allen Patali has his new book, Locust Summer. You should definitely check it out. And um, you should also check out uh, Graham Greene's The Quiet American, both excellent novels. Um, one has been around longer than the other, but, you know, let's look back on Locust Summer in 70 years and, you know, might be vintage <laughs> just the way Greene's <laughs> has so. gone. Yeah. I hope so. I, you don't know I, with that I stuff, hope I'm hey? not around, though. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, geez, 70 years. <laughs> 
All right. Um, yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for being part of this. And uh, That was yeah. a great chat, man. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you. It was good to go deep on something, mate. That was great. Isn't yeah. it fun? I love doing this sort of yes. thing. Yes. Yeah.